0: Hello and welcome to the FDI Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Owen hunt the Global Markets Editor of FDI Intelligence. In this episode, I will explore India's transformation into a unified nation brand and how foreign investment has shaped both economic development and domestic politics. Joining me to discuss is Ravindra Kaur, Professor of Modern South Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen and the author of a recent book, Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Designs in 21st Century India. Having grown up in India herself before entering the world of academia, where she focuses across the disciplines of history, anthropology, and international politics, Ravinda brings a fresh, unique perspective on the role that foreign investment has played in India's development. I started our conversation by asking her to walk us through some of the main findings and arguments of her book.
1: So my book basically delves into the old desire of India to become a great barber. So what I'm trying to show is that how in 1990s, this old desire got transferred, enacted in the domain of economy and how the foreign investments began playing a part in reframing the domestic politics. The logic that I'm trying to show here is that how the foreign, the for foreign investments become a form of recognition of the nation state. Now, this is an emotional side of capital or foreign investments a whole field which is usually seen in very technical, level-headed, rational terms. But there is this emotional side to it which is almost overlooked. What do foreign investments really do within the national politics? And this is where we see that since 1990s, India has been reconfigured over and over again in many ways. So this is what my book is about. So one thing is about the logic of the nation state itself that how India, is increasingly imagined as an attractive investment destination and a site of production. And which basically means that you begin reimagining the nation state, its territory, its inhabitants, all as factors of production. So you see territory as natural resources which are waiting to be tapped or inhabitants as human capital or in india the term which is used is uh, the demographic dividend that it's the world's largest and youngest population this reimagination of the nation state has its own particular logic and that's what i'm trying to show and i enter into this field from an unusual angle namely the domain of publicity that how the you know the indian nation in itself is moved into like how, what kind of new forms of nationalism does it produce? India has also become increasingly hyper-nationalist. So how do you explain this kind of pride which has been going on for the last, in the making the last three decades? So I think this is where I bring economy, publicity, politics all together in a single frame.
0: Well, thank you very much for that outline. I'd like to pick your brain a little bit on this legitimization that uh, foreign investment brings um, and and so this recognition of the nation state. Do you think there's any tangible examples you could give listeners that illustrate this point?
1: I think let us take the current uh, government in India, uh, Mr. Narendra Modi's government, which is... um, Uh, which, as you can see, is doing very major changes within domestic politics in terms of, you know, what is known as a cultural social arena. Uh, But what allows it to what allows it a sort of carte blanche is the fact, the claim that, look, there is foreign investment coming in. So if you read everyday newspapers, constantly the argument which is put forward is, but look, everything is fine because the world recognizes it. Perhaps the example, concrete example we can take is what happened in Kashmir last year. On 5th August, 2019, uh, the special status of Kashmir was revoked. And uh, I think few people paid attention that uh, almost simultaneously, uh, the government also made an announcement that that, that there is going to be an investment summit in Kashmir. Uh, What, if you put two into things together, what you can see is that just when a massive political change is being brought into Kashmir, at the same time, the region is being offered to investors. So India Inc., you know, the corporate lobby is very happy. And most foreign, uh, you know, foreign governments, they don't say anything because they don't want to lose the Indian market. So market actually becomes this bargaining tool here which allows you to reframe or rearrange the entire nation. So I'm just giving you one example, but there are so many examples of this sort. So I think this is the work of foreign investments within the nations, which I think hardly is paid attention to this kind of back and forth, which goes on, because they are seen as two separate domains, but they are not. So it is this connection that I'm trying to lay out in my book.
0: It's fascinating. I mean, at FDR Intelligence, we work a lot in the investment promotion sphere and um and certainly it's it, it seemingly is separate it's it's very much always framed in terms of job creation. What does this mean in practice for economic development? but this is a very interesting link that you've explored in your book um this this emotional side of things and actually how it impacts the political sphere I'd like to pick sort of lay out the timeline um you know India began liberalizing its economy in 1991 and opening up to foreign investment. I mean, you've explored in your book this timeline, but what do you see as the defining events along since 1991 to up up to now?
1: I think a number of things have happened, but I mean, first, this thing that India itself becomes an object of speculation in the world economy, right? And the moment it becomes, uh, you know, just when it is becoming this object of speculation, uh, it is also that there is a huge amount of turbulence going on within the nation. So I think I will quickly, if I was to think about, uh, uh, you know, recall that in 1992, you know, the destruction of Babri Masjid, the mosque which actually is a defining event. And uh, we continue to see the impact of that even in 2020 uh, with the laying down of the foundation of the new temple. Uh, Then there is, uh, you know, this is also an era of massive communal violence, as it is called, uh, which is going on. In 1998, India does nuclear tests. And I must also mention that even though it happens in 89-90, but uh, uh, you know, the passing of the affirmative action, caste-based affirmative action, uh, that also has a huge impact on reframing the nation. So all of these things which are happening, and of course, I'm not even mentioning the obvious thing, which is the, you know, the, the, like consumerism, you know, uh, that India or at least the Indian middle class begins becoming part of the world. So I think many of these things are taking place. There is turbulence, but none of this is set in stone. Like India could have gone in many different ways in 1990s, but it did not. It has gone in this particular way. So I think perhaps what I would say the defining event would be sometimes in 2003 and uh, 2004, when when the logic of economic reforms, of logic of growth, GDP, etc., become a part of national vocabulary, and this happens during the well-known India Shining campaign, which the government of India launched. And it was actually the Ministry of Finance uh, which launched it. So the India Shining campaign was um, a bit to tell the world, or actually, first of all, uh, Indian, Indian citizens, that India is doing very well, because this is when FDIs really begin flowing in, in full force. And, uh, and uh, the campaign was to say that, look, we are doing pretty well. And Indians need to invest in their own economy. Uh, And everyone knows that that, you know, uh, that election campaign, that, that election season, I mean, the BJP government lost. That was Atal Bihari Vajpayee's government. And most people laid the blame on this particularly uplifting, optimistic campaign. But what I'm trying to show is that that was actually the turning point. Where, you know, what usually economists or policy experts uh, usually discuss in very technical language, now had been made into a popular thing where you could think about, you could imagine uh, reforms as the you know possible good life that you too could have, right? So I think this logic that we are witnessing, uh, you know, which eventually uh, leads to the emergence of Narendra Modi, who is basically capitalizing on all these developments. And then he comes with this campaign called Acche Din, the good time. And I think this is this, this is the way I would lay out the genealogy of many turbulent, you know, the turbulent decade. And then when economic growth, GDP, FDI, foreign investment, all becomes part of India's regular common vocabulary.
0: That's very interesting. I think when you mentioned this Indian Shining campaign and and the more recent campaign um, launched by Narendra Modi, what do you think were the lessons learned during that time period that then has sort of led up to the formation of this brand new nation and and the, the really unified brand of India as a destination for investment?
1: Well, I think some lessons I would say that the Narendra Modi government has learned are wrong lessons which is basically there is too much reliance on publicity when you look at uh, the government of india many of these campaigns which are run they are literally like government of india has become an image machine in a way you know churning out uh, you know images of good news happy positive things all the time and actually almost relying on as if publicity in itself can do the work right so which probably is l- leading into a very fragile situation. And we are witnessing that right now, that Indian economic situation right now, uh, which has nothing to do with uh, with the pandemic. I mean, it had already started going down. It is because the fundamental problems have not been dealt with, namely, for example, investing uh, in the population, you know, the social investments in terms of education or malnutrition or, you know, many of the many of these very fundamental things which are actually not glamorous or nothing, nothing to talk loud about. So I think the lessons which have been learned from the spectacular things which were happening in the, you know, at the turn of the millennium. So probably there is need to rethink the path ahead.
0: Okay. Interesting. What about if we bring to the current moment, I mean, you've just written your book, but there must have been a reason why now felt like the right time. I mean, what, what drove you to write the book now and, and was the timing relevant in terms of the pandemic and, and India coming to sort of the, the apogee of, of its development as a, as, a, as a nation brand?
1: No, not really. I mean, I think I've been working on this subject for the last decade. It just so happens that it is published now. So when I began working on this book, I was actually attracted to the fact that India was changing and India was being spoken of outside India in a very different way than most of us have grown with. So someone like me who has, uh, who's born and brought up and educated in India, you know, like a common topic of discussion in universities used to be that someday India will become a superpower. And we used to laugh about it. So, but sometimes in 2007, 8, 6, things started changing when people started saying, well, it's not about if India will, but it's about when. And then comes somebody like Barack Obama, and he said, oh, well, India has already arrived, you know? So when India's 60th independence anniversary uh, came, uh, it was as if India could not put a foot wrong. There was so much uh, celebration of India basically as... Uh, the democratic alternative to China. Uh, so I think that is what drew me. That what precisely uh, can transform a post-colony into an attractive investment destination. Not to mention the whole idea of emerging markets. So this is not even just about India. It is about the larger old Third World, which was always seen as a place of pessimism, where you know development go- aid goes and to die. But here we were speaking about uh, third world or India particularly as a place of hope and optimism, not just for itself, but also for global capitalism. So if you read all those financial documents, investment booklets produced around that time, it's all talking about that, look, if you really want growth, you go to emerging markets. Right. So I think I was fascinated by this switch, which is taking place uh, in the old third world. And in India, it was happening with full force, but as I, it took me a while to, uh, you know, I've done a lot of field work, for example, at World Economic Forum, where India puts up its investment pavilion. Uh, So it just so happens that my book is published now at a juncture where all those dreams, which seemed certain, do not seem certain anymore. So it's it's like it's something I still ponder about. So I think basically what I've written is the history of that golden moment, uh, which we are uncertain about at this moment, right now.
0: Certainly, yeah, there was really that buzz about the emerging markets and, and the so-called BRICs. So Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, or even just BRIC uh, yeah. with the emission of South Africa. But actually recently we've seen certainly in our uh, Greenfield foreign direct investment data that the amount of announced projects in BRIC economies, including India of course, has actually declined relative to OECD economies and that's even pre-COVID. Now mm. it's the even more challenging uh, investment landscape for emerging markets um, as as investors are sort of more in a, a wait-and-see uh, mode and, and and looking more towards safe haven countries. Mm. What do you think India can do to to really uh, Turbocharge its investment attraction given this challenging environment.
1: Well, as I have said, that some of the things which India needs to do, irrespective of the government which is in power, which is long-term investments in the population, which is not purely to do with whether India is, you know, an attractive investment destination, but for the good of the nation, that you know, turning like investing in education, investing in, in nutrition, investing in all the you know, skills. Like one of the things, for example, has been that India has a huge labor force, but often it is unskilled. So what do you do with that? You know? So I think these, these things are uh, you know, unglamorous or uh, long-term and they do not have quick returns for, for any politician or any political party so who's going to do it that that is something uh, i'm not sure about
0: one of the campaigns to really drive investment into india is the so-called make in india campaign i won't i won't try to attempt the uh, the pronunciation of 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 the word in in the local language but given your hist- the, your knowledge of the recent history and and this outline of the of the timeline from liberalization of the indian economy in 1990 What do you think of the Make in India campaign? And do you think it's just the latest in a long-term plan? Or or is it somewhat a turning point in India's story?
1: I'm not sure if it's a turning point. I think uh, basically, Make in India came about with the realization that India needs to become a manufacturing hub, which, uh, which taking basically lessons from China, that China becomes factory of the world, uh and that uh, investments in itself don't do anything india has to become a manufacturing hub so i think many of the you know these things were rebranded rephrased uh you know just from investment destination to becoming a manufacturing hub so make in india is a result of that
0: now as you've mentioned the make in india campaign was aimed at transforming india into a manufacturing hub and when Narendra Modi launched the initiative in September 2014, the goal was to both increase the productivity and growth within the manufacturing sector, uh, but also raise the contribution of the manufacturing sector to GDP from 16% to 25%. And it has fallen short of that goal uh, as as we record this at the end of 2020. Why do you think the Make in India campaign has not reached its full? potential yet?
1: That I think has to do with uh, some of these things that I've already mentioned that uh, India needs to invest into its own population somehow. And, uh, and that it cannot just be a publicity blitz, it has to be more than that. So I think making India uh, is as catchy as you know, uh, visible as any other campaign, but often it lacks those, uh, you know, the heavy input that it requires.
0: So it's certainly a step in the right direction. You're trying to develop this manufacturing hub, but as you mentioned, this is probably following in the footsteps of China. And if we bring into the present, of course, there has been quite a lot of tension between India and its large neighbor this year. Uh, that's in, in 2020, you know, you've had border disputes um, in the north, You've had some bans on Chinese investment, particularly into the technology sector. What is your take on these developments and this tension between the two major powers in uh, in Asia?
1: I think uh, many of these things have been brewing up for a long time. I mean, uh, India and China have a long history of rivalry. But what has happened in the recent, year is, recent years is that uh, China has been expanding its footprints within the region, within the Asian region and South Asian region. Uh, particularly Pakistan, for example, which is India's arch rival, uh, that has become a kind of, you know, this uh, territory where China has a very major uh, footprint. For instance, CPEC, you know, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which uh, which has become, you know, a, a, a difficult spot. So I'm trying to mention that actually, uh, this kind of uh, rivalry or this kind of uh, antagonism, which is brewing up in the region where uh, China has, uh, you, know, you know, Sri Lanka, uh, you know, Nepal, Bangladesh, you know, so it's somehow it is like surrounded by like China making, making inroads. So I think this uh, very strong backlash, uh, which, uh, which has uh, been generated against China within India. And the banning of uh, all the apps, etc. I mean, it shows basically that um, that China is no longer—it's no no longer just a bilateral problematic. It is a far uh, bigger regional problem that India is deeply uncomfortable with.
0: Mm-hmm. So I suppose it's it's rising Chinese influence through the Belt and Road Initiative, as you mentioned the the China uh, economic or the Pakistani corridor. Um, so. Do you think it's specifically the infrastructure developments and maybe the reliance of of India's neighbours on China that that is disconcerting, or is it more about the broader uh, tensions we're seeing across the globe, with, for instance, the you know the US and China's Chinese China uh, and technology and the trade war? Um, what's your take? I mean, is it is it the infrastructure development? Is it the reliance? Is it technology specifically?
1: But I think it's both, because first of all, the, the regional uh, changes that we are discussing, namely the infrastructure building in different, different parts of South Asia, uh, that has been very disconcerting and that has been brewing for the last several years. And uh, on the other hand, uh, this U.S.-China uh, trade wars, you know, that certainly has had an impact uh, where India has become closer to U.S., so this whole question of decoupling between Chinese and American economy uh, and the hope that some of that will you know, be be rooted towards India. So that certainly plays a role. So I think India is uh, uh, the discomfort, deep discomfort which 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 happens. It is both internal as I mean regional, uh, but at the same time the global backlash against China. So I think they are tied together somehow
0: what about the future i know it's uh, it's not not easy to be a forecaster but given your extensive knowledge of of the development of india up to this point what do you think the future holds for the indian nation brand is there and its openness to foreign investment do you think maybe there needs to be any readjustment for a post covid era or is it generally been the right direction i mean what 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 does the future hold from your position
1: well you know As any historian would tell you that um, nothing is set in stone. Things can go many different ways. And as we already know that the good life, a good time that India had been hoping for, it has somehow not happened. Similarly, we are at a point when uh, foreign investments or foreign recognition, which should have brought India to to the table of uh, global high power, I mean, um, and at this, the utopian futures, I mean, they have turned a little bit dystopic. Uh, And here I refer to both the inside, outside, internal, external uh, dynamic where foreign investment continues flowing in, but yet India is becoming more and more illiberal inside. So I think which makes one thing that, uh, you know, this whole notion which has long... Uh, informed our thinking that uh, liberal politics leads uh, to liberal economy and vice versa, what we are witnessing is and it's not just in India and in many parts of the world that uh, liberal economy can perfectly inhabit, you know, cohabit with illiberal politics right? So uh, this is the situation at this moment uh, but I would say that nothing is set in stone which basically means that things can become different too And this is where the hope lies, that uh, hopefully thinking about the population or the citizens, you know, not merely as factors of production, people who generate income, but also as right-bearing citizens, that would be an important move. So I think um, the future, you can never tell, but we can only hope that it can lead to better results.
0: Yeah, certainly. I think that that's a very interesting distinction you make, you know, liberal economy and illiberal politics, they can coexist and don't necessarily impact the investments being made. Um, so that's sort of an interesting discussion to be had given the drive towards environmental, social and governance principles in investment decisions and sort of the, that how that is top of mind in, in the C-suites of multinationals across the globe. Yet there still is a, a conflict in domestically in in economies that attract this investment one last point i'd like to discuss is the diverse landscape and different states within india now there's 28 states across india uh, of course a population of almost 1.4 billion people and you've seen increasingly many states uh, bolster their efforts to attract foreign investment um, to give one tangible example, in June 2020, the northern state of Uttar Pradesh set up its own investment promotion agency. I wonder, what, what do you think of the investment promotion efforts of individual Indian states? And how do you think these state level initiatives align with India's nation brand as a whole?
1: So I think, first of all, I think this, is, this has become a standard formula for nearly all states. That uh, India or brand India is seen as the mother brand and uh, India, which is a federal union, uh, each, each unit becomes a competitor to another. And each almost all states have their own uh, regional brand, uh, you know, state brands and investment programs. So they compete with each other. So India has become a container of different sub-brands which are competing with each other. So Uttar Pradesh, of course, is one of them. And Uttar Pradesh has been in much limelight also because the central government is promoting it and it is, it is uh, part of the larger political uh, uh, you know, in, like project in a way because Uttar Pradesh is also the place where uh, you know, the Ram temple or the Ayodhya temple is located and this is where the constituency parliamentary constituency of the prime minister is also located in Banaras. So Uttar Pradesh is being uh, promoted, Uh, it's not just the state government doing it, it is literally the central government doing it. And also because the current uh, chief minister of Uttar Pradesh is being pushed forth as a future leader of the party. And uh, when I say that this is a standard formula, what I mean to say is that um, by now it has become uh, somehow accepted that as long as you continue bringing in investments somehow it balances out everything else. So the fact that Uttar Pradesh is seeking to become this investment hub, or to say that it wants to contribute, become this $1 trillion economy, which would help the $5 trillion economy dream of the prime minister is not a coincidence, right? So at the same time, Uttar Pradesh is also the state, which has recently passed a law, uh, which uh, which uh, restricts uh, interfaith unions between Hindus and Muslims right so I think it is uh, in a way uh, what we are witnessing in Uttar Pradesh is precisely the recognition which comes with investments but at the same time the carte blanche you know the the, the you know the power to do whatever you want to do domestically so these two things so I think uh, this has happened in Gujarat in 2002 3. Uh, You know, with Vibrant Gujarat, uh, which was one of the first major uh, sub-brands. So similarly, I I would say that um, in that sense, uh, if we hear a lot about Uttar Pradesh, then this is the background. So
0: we've covered a lot in our discussion and it's been fascinating to pick your brain and uh, hear more about this timeline of India becoming a a nation as a whole and and rebranding itself in, in that regard. You said, you know, we've talked about the legitimization that foreign investment brings, that the, this logic of, of, the, of the nation states, seeing individuals as production sites and, 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 and factors of production in that sense. And this, this intense publicity that the Indian government uses as both a tool to attract investment, but also for some of its uh, domestic policies. I wonder if you could just give our listeners some, some main takeaways, uh, some closing thoughts, uh, given our discussion.
1: Uh, I would say that uh, it is perhaps it's quite important that we like stop looking at the sphere of, of economy as a very rational, technical thing. Uh, because, you know, if if you look at BRIC nations or, you know, any like it's not just about BRIC nations, it's actually particularly my research has been about the old third world. Uh, So I've been doing a lot of work in Sri Lanka, I've been to Rwanda, you know, from uh, across Asia, Africa, what you see is that this, this kind of, uh, you know, the, the ways in which economy or the lure of investments and infrastructures, the ways in which it reshapes uh, the national politics is something which is totally overlooked. So I think it would be tremendously important that uh, material and moral domains are brought together somehow. know? And when we speak about, for example, identity politics today, uh, you know, then it is seen as, uh, you know, recently Fukuyama came up with this idea that this has purely to do with, you know, your uh, self-worth or self-recognition. But I think uh, what he overlooks completely is, you know, how, uh, you know, the material needs Also play a very major role in constructing those identities. So I think we have been missing probably some of these uh, important insights by separating these two things, you know, politics and economy, or the the rational or the irrational emotional and the material sides of things because all of us, you know, we lead lives which are, uh, you know, where one sphere cannot be disconnected from another. So I think this would be if I have learned something, uh, you know, following my work, it is that uh, it is tremendously important not to think about the sphere of economy as something which only experts, like technical experts, do, but it is something which which is only made possible through popular support. And this is where, you know, massive, mass mobilisation comes into the picture, you know, the kind of things that I have been talking about.
0: That was my conversation with Ravinder Kaur professor of modern south asian studies at the university of copenhagen if you enjoy ravina's insights on india's transformation you can find her book on major online platforms if you've enjoyed this podcast episode please do subscribe on acast or spotify to get more episodes in the future we have some exciting new content coming in 2021 i've been alex owen hunt thank you for listening and see you next time
1: only from rustolium